0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. The World Series ended last night. Texas Rangers winning their first ever world championship. And the hero was Corey Seager because the Arizona Diamondbacks had Zach Gallen on the my, uh, mound, and he took a no-hitter into the seventh inning. It looked like uh, this was not going to be Texas's night, but Seager broke up that no-hitter with a hit in the seventh inning, and then scored the winning run. Five nothing was the final score. Seager named the uh, MVP for the series for the second time. Joining Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, and Reggie Jackson. I don't think you can ever fathom that, Seeger said. Um, and remember, this is a team that lost 94 games last year, but they spent a lot of money bringing in some stars, and it paid off. It didn't pay off at the uh, box office because as of before last night's game, lowest TV numbers in history, just over 8 million or the uh, previous game. You know, these aren't nationally known franchises like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox. Um, And most of the games were blowouts, except for the first one. Anyway, congrats to the Rangers. Now for the Beatles. And now I have just listened to the Beatles song. And I must say, it's better than I expected in that it, it holds together. It starts out with just John on the piano, And then you hear the bass and the drums come in. Later there are strings, which was Paul McCartney's idea. But none of this overpowers. You hear Paul singing harmony. uh, You hear the guitar solo. But it's very well produced and it never overshadows or overpowers that this is a song that John Lennon wrote and sings lead on. But it's kind of lifted up by... The band that uh, we all came to know and love. Uh, I'm just kind of at a loss for words because I've just heard new Beatles music, and yes, I know it was patched together and all that. Um, but the way they did it, it—if you didn't know about the history and the use of artificial intelligence—you would just simply assume that this was recorded with all four of the Mop Tops in the same studio. And uh, I want to listen to it a few more times, but it's really something. Um, I have a column today on this, a little change of pace. Uh, and I talk in the column about, you know, how Lennon of the four of them, the fab four, was the most willing to be politically active, was a crusader, against the Vietnam War, reflected in such songs as Revolution, Imagine, Give Peace a Chance. And that had consequences for John Lennon because the Nixon administration tried to deport him. The head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, was personally involved. And they were using an old marijuana conviction as the pretext or excuse. Finally, after a four-year legal battle, John Lennon was won a green card, was allowed to stay in this country by the time that Jerry Ford became president. So it's just interesting to me what a cultural phenomenon this is, whether you're a big Beatles fan or not, or even a rock music fan. Uh, one other thing before we get down to business, and there were House votes yesterday. One brought by Republicans, a bunch of New York Republicans, to expel George Santos, who won that seat on a tissue of lies, who is currently under criminal indictment. But you need a two-thirds vote to do that, and it failed. At the same time, there was a vote also requiring a two-thirds majority, not even close, to censure squad member Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, for various anti-Semitic remarks. That whole climate obviously exacerbated by the Israel-Hamas war. 23 Republicans, including some conservatives who raised free speech concerns, uh, joined the Democrats in voting that measure down. So Santos, by the way, the measure uh, rejected by the House was 213 to 179. All right, let's do story number one. This is sort of a uh, bit of a deep dive by the New York Times on what a second Trump term would look like. And before I even get into the details, the um, mere fact that this was extensively researched and published by three... Uh, top Times reporters, including Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan, um, is telling because up until now, I think the um, whispered consensus, I guess I would say, in the mainstream media is that there's no way Donald Trump's going to be elected president of the United States again. But it's certainly possible. Looking at the polls, of course, it's a long time between now and November of twenty four. The fact that he's been indicted four times has only seemed to help him. And so the Times begins the piece by saying close allies of Donald Trump preparing to populate a new administration with a more aggressive breed of right-wing lawyer dispensing with traditional conservatives who they believe stymied his agenda in his first term. They've been drawing up lists of lawyers they view as ideologically and temperamentally suited to serve in a second Trump administration. Their aim is to reduce the chances that politically appointed lawyers would frustrate a more radical White House agenda. As they sometimes did when Trump was in office, raising objections to his desires for certain harsher immigration policies or for greater personal control over the Justice Department, among others. I mean, Trump would come up with these schemes. Let's buy Greenland. And he basically did what he wanted. I mean, I guess you could say they talked him out of it, in some cases involving DOJ, but he weighed in all the time about there should be an indictment of Barack Obama and Joe Biden, as well as others. Um, And, of course, toward the very end of his term, arguing and bringing cases, court cases, all of which he lost, that the election was rigged or stolen, depending on which word he uh, liked to use, or sometimes he'd use both. What's fascinating about this piece is that there are lots of shots at the Federalist Society. Um, At the start of Trump's term, his administration relied on the influential Federalist Society, the conservative legal network, whose members filled key executive branch roles, and whose leader helped select his judicial nominees, leader being Leonard Leo. But in a striking shift, Trump allies are building new recruiting pipelines separate from the Federalist Society. That's a significant break within the conservative movement. Now, it's kind of stunning that the very uh, conservative and very aggressive Federalist Society is now viewed as bad news by Trump, insiders, and allies. The Federal Society doesn't know what time it is, said Russell Vaught, former senior Trump official who runs a think tank. The move away from the group reflects the continuing evolution, the Times says, of the Republican Party in the Trump era. An effort among those now in his inner circle to take control of the government Two of them leading the push are Stephen Miller, former senior advisor, and John McAtee, who was the head of um, personnel and who often went after, or they were you know, among those who helped President Trump go after people in his administration who um, were perceived to be disloyal Now, tellingly, the story says Trump himself focused on his own legal problems is disengaged from these efforts. But I guess the strong implication is that he will sign on. People close to the foreign president saying they are seeking out a different type of lawyer committed to his America first ideology and willing to endure the personal and professional risks of association with Trump. They want lawyers and federal agencies and in the White House who are willing to use theories that more established lawyers, more establishment lawyers, would reject to advance his cause. And that kind of fits his rhetoric that he's waging a final battle against enemies populating a deep state within the government bent on destroying America. Well, here's an example. John Mitnick, appointed by Trump as General Counsel of Homeland Security in 2018, fired the next year as part of a broad purge uh, and was replaced by one of Miller's allies, Stephen Miller. Now, Mitnick told the paper, no qualified attorneys with integrity will have any desire to serve as political appointees in a second Trump. Term and saying it will be predominantly staffed by opportunists who will rubber stamp whatever Trump and his senior White House staff want to do. Now, if this were a more conventional presidency, I would say, well, of course, the new president wants to have people who will agree with him and you know, rubber stamp, obviously, a pejorative term, you know, will we'll carry out his agenda will not try to block him. But given what Trump tried to do to the Justice Department and other agencies, uh, there is a question of what type of lawyer, what type of Republican, what type of conservative would still want to work for Donald Trump and which types he would want working for him. And one little anecdote here. January 2020, that's obviously when... uh, the beginning of Trump's last year at office, Leonard Leo, head of the uh, Federal Society, was having dinner at Mar-a-Lago when Trump came up to his table, publicly berated him, and accused him of recommending Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, you remember him, for the guy who appointed Bob Mueller as the special counsel to look into Russiagate. Leonard Leo was taken aback, said he'd actually suggested someone else For the job, Pat Cipollone, Trump walked away without apologizing. But Leonard Leo declined to take or return Trump's calls after that and has only uh, dealt with him through others. So obviously, this is a mutual breakup. The Federalist Society perhaps fed up with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, it's quite clear, or at least his allies, fed up with the Federalist Society. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast, featuring Common Ground, in depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his All Star panel and much more. Available now at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Number two Speaker Mike Johnson, I'm still getting used to that, told Senate Republicans yesterday that he supports aiding Ukraine, but drew a hard line combining that military aid with money for Israel, that according to Politico. This is uh, a challenge for Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, who want to stitch together funding for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and Mexican border security. But the newly elected speakers did give the senator something to work with by making clear he supports new money for Ukraine's defense uh, against Russia, even if it's not comparable in size to what President Biden wants. So he's obviously not shutting the door, but he wants separate votes. The question then will be, what does the Democratic Senate do if Johnson, in the next day or two, is able to pass a bill among you know, by drawing upon the Republican majority of the House, to only give aid to Israel. It's a tough thing to vote against. And what guarantee is there that there would, that Johnson would continue to support aid to Ukraine and at what level? So he also told these senators that beefed up border security and Ukraine are inextricably intertwined, according to John Cornyn. But That may be a good thing. That may not be a good thing. But it looks like Biden is not going to get his way, at least at this moment in time, of pushing through a large military aid package for both Israel and Ukraine. Here's Senator Roger Marshall in Kansas quoted as saying if Johnson tried to combine all these parts that Schumer and McConnell want blended, the most obvious of which is Israel and Ukraine, quote, his caucus would revolt and would probably be the end of his speakership. So he would be like Scaramucci. He wouldn't last very long. Uh, Also, the new speaker wants to uh, dodge any Senate attempt to jam him with a year-old catch-all federal spending bill of the kind that passed nearly a year ago when the Dems were still in control. Johnson told these senators he wants to fund the government through January 15th, stopgap measure, probably the only realistic option at this point, but he doesn't want one of these Christmas Eve specials where all kinds of pork is thrown into a bill while the clock is ticking. He also talked about a 1% reduction in any spending bill. Politico says the Democrats won't accept that. Well, they feel like they already made their deal to avoid the debt ceiling default back in the spring. But, you know, the fact that the Democrats automatically dig in against a 1% spending cut is telling. I mean, there isn't 1% of federal spending in each agency or in many agencies that couldn't find a way to survive with a simple 1% across-the-board reduction. Uh, the speaker also floating, having floated April 15th, as another funding deadline that wouldn't have gone over well with the Senate people who were in charge of the purse strings there. So we'll see what happens. The Washington Post version says that House Republicans plan to pay for emergency aid to Israel. And I like when things are paid for rather than just blowing up the budget deficit by cutting an equal amount, it's about $14 billion, from the IRS would actually increase the deficit by $90 billion over 10 years, says the new head of the IRS. The reason would be, according to Daniel Werfel, and look, he's a Biden appointee. He was actually took the job last year. The cuts in IRS enforcement would lead to greater expense by reducing audits of the wealthy and large corporations. Now, the CBO, the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, said last year that the $80 billion in IRS expansion, those were the funds that were passed under Biden's you know, inflation reduction act, which didn't reduce inflation very much, um, would add $12 billion to the deficit over the next 10 years. That's quite a come down from the IRS's own estimate. But nevertheless, you know, though it sounds great, everybody hates the IRS, right? You know, we're gonna take this money away from the IRS thugs. But whether it's 12 billion in lost revenue or twenty-six billion in lost tax revenue. So one is the deficit. The second one is lost tax revenue. Or $90 billion, as the IRS itself says. Clearly, something that's being proposed in the name of cutting spending in order to give more money to Israel actually would, the consensus is, it, it would boost the amount that's being fought over, um, the revenue that comes into the Treasury. Number three. After weeks of waiting, and this is a relief, hundreds of people were allowed to leave the Gaza Strip yesterday. The first of thousands of foreigners, aid workers, and critically wounded patients were expected to exit in the coming days. There were uh, a relatively small number of Americans who were allowed out yesterday, but U.S. diplomats are saying that they expect five to 600 Americans to be able to begin to leave the besieged Gaza Strip today. Reason's not clear. So that's a step forward. You know it's a step backwards as an interview with a top Hamas leader, who's, you know, sitting pretty in Qatar or wherever this thing was done, saying, we are proud to sacrifice martyrs. When, when the invasion happened, when the attacks happened on uh, October 7th, We didn't want to harm civilians. We just ran into this huge party. So we killed them all. Come on. This all stretches any credulity. We are the victims. Everything we do is justified, says this Hamas leader. We would do it again, over and over and over again. And the interviewer asks, in terms of their stance, does that mean the annihilation of Israel? Yes, of course, says this Hamas leader. So, you, know, you see what's at stake here. They don't try to hide it. They want all Israelis gone. They want the state of Israel wiped off the map. Now, how does Israel negotiate, when people say, ceasefire, has got to be a ceasefire, with a terrorist group that whose aim is not peace, but the wiping out of the Jewish state created uh, with help from the UN in 1948. This is interesting, another political story. Joe Biden and his top aides have discussed the likelihood that Benjamin Netanyahu's political days are numbered. And the president has conveyed that sentiment to the Israeli prime minister in a recent conversation. It's come up in a bunch of White House meetings involving Biden, according to two senior administration officials. This has included discussions that have taken place since Biden's trip to Israel and his meeting with Bibi. Biden's gone so far to suggest to Bibi that he should think about lessons he would share with his eventual successor. A current U.S. official and a former U.S. official both confirmed that the administration believes Netanyahu has limited time left in office. Now, I can see the argument because when this war finally ends, whenever that is, let's say it's four months from now, There's going to be investigations of the security breakdown that allowed this to happen. Netanyahu, who has not apologized for the security breakdown, is going to be blamed. Oh, here's a a blind quote from one of the officials. There's going to have to be a reckoning within Israeli society about what happened. Ultimately, the buck stops on the prime minister's desk. I'll just add that there have been a number of times in the past when it looked like Netanyahu was going to be forced from office. Um, And each time that hasn't happened. He is a survivor. He is sort of Trump-like in his ability, even though, you know, he faces criminal investigation, uh, to either postpone or delay or wiggle out of these political jams, some of which he has created most recently with the right-wing coalition government to which he added uh, a couple of unity members from opposition parties now to have a unity war cabinet. At one point during the trip, Biden advised Netanyahu to consider the scenario he was leaving for his successor. But a separate White House official downplaying the idea that Netanyahu's future was a topic of interest, saying that any chatter was just idle speculation. Well, the truth probably lies someplace in between. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, my Fox colleague Guy Benson writing in Town Hall about something that has really bugged me as well. For weeks, we've written, uh, witnessed excuse me, a steady stream of videos featuring Hamas supporters and sympathizers ripping down posters advertising the active, ongoing plight of more than 200 hostages who were kidnapped from Israel during the terrorist organization's deadly rampage on October 7th. Every time I see videos of this happening, and in some cases the Hamas sympathizers or supporters being confronted by pro-Israel people, it's just tearing down posters Of people, civilians, families often with children, babies, being ripped down by people who have no problem apparently with the atrocities, the killing of children and babies and women, carried out by the Hamas terrorists. So Guy Benson writes, I cannot help but to seethe with rage whenever clips of these deeply deranged acts uh, cross my social media timeline, the cruel, inhumane impulse to tear down, destroy, or deface these flyers is difficult for civilized people to comprehend. One common theme I've noticed is that when people are confronted while engaged in this bafflingly ugly behavior, they tend to offer absolutely nothing in a way of a coherent explanation for what they're doing. Guilt and a desire not to be reminded of what their fellow anti-Zionists have done and are still doing must play some role in this. I suspect a twisted sense of who or what deserves public attention and sympathy is also at play. Only victims of Israel matter. Israeli victims, therefore, complicate that mentality. So the Israeli victims must be diminished, dehumanized, and erased. Guy Benson writing, some of the perpetrators are just hardcore bigots who proudly mug for the camera, refusing to engage in questions as they continue their actions. Others aggressively insult the people calling them out. They hate the Jewish state. They support what Hamas did to the Jews. They don't see the hostages as victims, civilians, or even full humans and still others, he adds, are conspiracy-addled paranoiacs who insist the hostages aren't really hostages. Yeah, the whole thing is made up. What about the four hostages that have been released? What about the female soldier who was held hostage who was freed by the Israeli military? No, these people don't exist. And it's just, like, why do they have to attack the posters? They can have their own demonstrations. They can say what they want. Free speech in America. Even if I vehemently disagree with it, they can say whatever they want. They can hold rallies, but when they start tearing down these posters, yeah, it it ticks me off no end. And I get—I guess, guess my assumption has been that they're just so anti-Semitic that they go after Jewish targets, even when those targets are people who are being held in captivity. And their pictures are being put up on you know telephone poles or wherever else you can hang up posters. but uh, Benson really furious about this, and says so in town hall. Okay, number five, we come back to the Trump family in this case. Donald Trump Jr. testifying yesterday at that civil trial in New York, which precipitated uh, a truth social post by his father saying to Judge Arthur and leave my children alone. Only problem with that reasoning is all of his three adult children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, are going to be called to testify at this civil fraud trial in Manhattan because they all had prominent roles at one time or another in the Trump organization. So, Don Jr. testifying yesterday that he had no involvement in the annual financial statements that his family's business gave to banks and insurers, uh, this in a New York Times write-up, despite language in the statements themselves suggesting that he was partly responsible for them. Don Jr. clarified, this all came in sort of the last five minutes of his testimony. He'll be back on the stand today. He soon clarified that his conversations with others at the company may have informed the financial statements. So he's saying, don't blame me, but yeah, I did talk to people about these statements. Uh, Attorney General Letitia James's office has argued that his signature on letters affirming his responsibility for these financial statements links him directly to fraud. So his name, he, he signed these letters that banks and insurance company uh, companies are on. Several times during his testimony, he spoke about the company's outside accountants at Masers USA. That's the name of the accounting company used by Trump. He asked whether he knew anything about the industry standard, generally accepted accounting principles. It's a very common term on anything where some sort of accounting experts are vouching for the financial health of the company they're working for. Uh, asked if he knew anything about this called Gap beyond what he learned in college, Don Jr. said, "No, that's what I have CPAs for." He added, "These people have an incredible had an incredibly intimate knowledge, and I relied on them. So that is known as." throwing them under the bus. Even though Don Jr. signed these papers that provided this reassurance to banks and insurance companies, which, by the way, are welcome to uh, do their own due diligence, and ended up not losing money. There was no defaults involved. And President Trump, former president, often makes this point, often in all caps on the Truth Social, where he talks to reporters at the courthouse there. So, yes, Don Jr. signed these papers. No, that's what I have CPAs for. They have the intimate knowledge, and I relied on them, throwing the accountants under the bus. The first witness in the trial was, in fact, one of the accountants or former accountants. So, in a way, there's no real suspense to this trial, although on Monday, maybe it'll end up being Tuesday, the former president of the United States will take the stand, in the civil trial. The reason there's less drama than you might expect, and I'm sure um, Trump Senior will provide some early next week, is that this judge, Angoran, has already ruled. This is not a jury trial. He's already ruled that fraud was committed by the Trump Organization and by the Trump family. And that means really the only thing at stake is what kind of penalty will be imposed. Well, that's a big deal because if a uh, really sizable penalty is imposed, meaning not just uh, a major fine, but, um, you know, yanking of business licenses where Trump would have to sell off his signature buildings in New York City, Trump Tower, uh, there's one down in the Wall Street area. Um that could pretty much either substantially damage the Trump organization or put it out of business, at least in New York State. And that's why Trump is fighting so hard. Yes, it's only a civil trial. Yes, there's no uh, prospect of going to jail here, unlike the four other indictments. But this is a lot of money at stake. It's a $250 million lawsuit. It is the corporate life of the Trump organization that is at stake. And it's the brand, you know, Trump as successful businessman that really enabled him to win the presidency. So that's why he has, he doesn't he's not required to be there. And Donald Trump is not required to testify, but he has chosen to testify. That's the plan anyway. And let's just say this is getting a lot of coverage on the tube. Enjoy having you along for the ride, as always. And maybe you enjoyed hearing about the World Series and the Beatles. I uh, Hope you'll come back tomorrow when we will have even more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.